watch cartoons We'll take a look back at where we've been So let's hop into our time machine Hello and welcome to another episode of Cartoon Time Machine. I'm Scarlett. And I'm Katie. And joining us this week is a frequent visitor to the podcast, Caleb. Caleb, welcome back. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I was very happy to be invited for this. I'm always happy to be invited, but for this particular episode, there was a particular excitement because this movie means a lot to me. <laughs> Uh, yeah, as uh, Caleb has alluded to, uh, this is another episode in our series uh, called Katie Watches Disney, uh, because uh, Katie has not seen most of the Disney movies that people of our generation uh, have grown up with. So I've taken it upon myself uh, and have now dragged Caleb into the quest uh, to further educate them and uh, give Katie a wider exposure uh, to the Disney movies that we know and love. Um, weirdly, I think this has sort of almost become like watching obscure Disney movies because we that last one we did was uh, was Great Mouse Detective, right? You have um, not started off in a lot. Well, now you did hit Frozen, so you've kind of been Frozen. bouncing back and forth between obscure and mainstream. That's true. That's true. We're in. We're in at least you know we got we got one super mainstream one. Um, and then, yeah, Great Mouse Detective, which was just for me because I love Great Mouse Detective. Um, and then here we are this week uh, with Hunchback of Notre Dame, uh, which is a special treat for both myself and Caleb. Uh, both of us uh, adored this movie. And I, I think I speak for both of us when I say we look for every possible opportunity to sing its praises. So thank you, Katie, for giving us that opportunity by forcing you to watch it. I wasn't given the option to say no. You are not. You are not. I think we were planning the schedule and it was like, oh, like we haven't done a Katie Watches Disney in a bit. I'm like, cool, you're watching Hunchback of Notre Dame and we're calling Caleb. Uh, hey, I think I was the one who put the parentheses, will be moved if Caleb can't make it. Yeah, there was there was no there was no world uh, for either of us, Caleb, in which you weren't invited for this because we know how much you like this movie. Yeah, I appreciate that a lot because, yeah, I, I did rewatch it for the episode and I think, just to go into kind of general thoughts a little bit, I think I can watch it and realize that, objectively speaking, it's probably not the best Disney movie, but also on rewatch, it cemented the fact that it is my personal favorite Disney movie of all time. I love this movie to death, and um, yeah, it's it's a really important movie for me. I, I think I have a similar opinion, Caleb. There, you know, I think that for most people, there is a difference between the best movies they've seen in any category and what's just a personal favorite. Uh, and Hunchback is is that for me as well. Um, I'll I'll happily acknowledge the faults, and I'm sure we'll get into some of that uh, later on. But overall, my opinion of this movie is just extremely high, and I am very happy to have any opportunity uh, to rewatch it. Um, but most importantly, Katie, you've now seen this movie for the first time, uh, yeah. came out in 1996. So, you know, you're, you're only about 30 years too late. Um, well, <laughs> I'll, I'll give you, I'll give you a pass on the first two years, uh, because <laughs> we were not born yet. Um, but every point uh, after that is all on you. I can't tell if, because this is not a visual medium and I have to call it out. I can't tell if Caleb's upset that I hadn't seen it for <laughs> 25 years. Or that it's 30 years old. 
No, I was about to just say, it's not 30 years old yet, but the reason I reacted like that is because one thing of like, hey, this movie has a lot of meaning for me is because this movie came out the year I was born. Nah, I see. <laughs> so hearing it be called nearly 30 years ago, is just, that's, that, yeah, that's, it well, made me feel things. Sorry mm. for the existential crisis there. <laughs> if, if that's what we're good for here. If it makes you feel any better, I first saw this movie uh, as a a like a bootlegged VHS tape uh, at my grandmother's house. I'm not fully sure how she got it. It did not have the label. I think she just like recorded it off the TV at one point looking for like opportunities to keep grandchildren entertained. So if we're all about aging ourselves here. A VHS tape recorded from TV, I think with commercials intact. So, you know, the passage of time. <laughs> Now I watched on a streaming service with uh, subtitles for the first time. <laughs> subtitles also were like not great. Oh, they were terrible. Disney Plus they were, were uniquely bad. <laughs> some of those. I don't think. I think Kazumoto was consistently uncapitalized for some oh, reason. That was a consistent yeah, a lot choice. Of uncapitalizing. Yeah, there was. It was a lot of uncapitalizing. It was frequently just wrong. Um, <laughs> but I did like it for the Latin because for the first time I could actually look up what the Latin words meant and pause the movie for that. A lot of the Latin is like really really interesting what they went with so yeah watching on subtitles does give you a, a nice bonus there uh but for, for sure and before we get too off track katie general thoughts having now seen this movie for the first time right so i already knew i i knew about a lot of details of the film and the fact that i probably should have seen it because it was very much up my alley uh, it's I, I knew it was going to be a very gorgeous film both musically and visually um God, I miss the days of things drawn like that. I love, I love gothic architecture, um, and stained glass. Though I had part of the stained glass was, well, the reflections on the floor. But why isn't it on her? She should have color too. That was just physics me going. Well, that's silly. That would never work hand drawn. <laughs> um, so I knew that was going to be a good old time. I did know I would have qualms with it because I have done research about representation in it. I knew that was going to be the roughest point of going, ooh, well, Victor Hugo was very racist. And it's less racist than he was. Yeah, for for point of point of order for for our audience, um, this movie you makes very liberal use of a word that has in modern times been categorized as a slur. It was not necessarily widely accepted as a slur in the '90s when it came out, but it was not correct then. It's not correct now. So whenever we're referring to a certain ethnic minority in this uh, movie, we're going to be using the terms Roma or Romani and not the word used in the movie, <laughs> which. I know at points can be will be difficult and apologies if we slip up at any point because the quoting directly from the movie and this movie being burned into my brain so much they say it a lot they say it a lot it's it's not like it's once every now and then thing it's like a really huge part of the movie which I do think is overall well-meaning about it but like it it is a lot of that oh don't worry this will be a later portion we can't get into this too soon um, yeah, why, why, Katie, since you, you have just seen the movie, uh, I know usually I end up giving, like, the summary of the film, um, but since it's fresh in your brain, you've just seen it, uh, why don't you give our audience a summary for those of us who, uh, have not seen it? How about Caleb does it? Because I may need to go, you know, stir a stew in a minute. 
I'm, I'm going to give no context to our audience and have them assume that's a euphemism. Go ahead, Caleb. <laughs> Uh, okay. Um, do, do people usually go to Wikipedia for this, or should I just do it off the top of the head? Um. Yep. There's no cheating here. If you you are more than welcome to use Wikipedia, you're more than welcome to give your own summary. Uh, no, I'll, I'll, I'll try to to improv it. Um. So yeah, the Hunchback of Notre Dame is adapted. Very. Uh, adaptation is a, a liberal use of that word uh, from the Victor Hugo novel. There are a lot of differences, and I know the Disneyfication of prop certain properties is often criticized. I think the movie is a definitive improvement from what I've heard about from the book. But regardless, um, inspired by the Victor Hugo novel of the same name, um, that tells the story of Quasimodo, um, who is a uh, the titular hunchback of Notre Dame. Um, who as a child is adopted by a um, judge in the French aristocracy uh, and brought up to basically be his uh, servant. Um, he's forced to live in the bell tower of Notre Dame his entire life and longs to be a part of the outside world um, and uh, eventually comes to meet um, a Romani woman named Esmeralda who um, kind of, uh, I guess, grows that inspiration and makes him even more wanting to, to join the world but furlough is trying to hold him back furlough's the name of the judge i don't think i actually said that furlough's the bad guy um <laughs> he's an abusive parent uh who wants to keep uh quasimodo under his thumb the entire time and um the conflict of uh um between quasimodo and furlough furlough's racism against esmeralda and her people um a guy named phoebus who's a pretty chill dude and uh just it's it's you know it's a story about a lot of characters learning how to accept outcasts and embrace the part of the outcast that is in themselves and learn how to um cope with that and make connections with those around you in spite of that i think it's an excellent summary well done for for something that i think was was largely improv well well done <laughs> thank you um, but yeah, I, I, again, think that that's a good, a good summary of the movie. Uh, I, yeah, again, to your point about the sort of Disneyfication, uh, of it, it's, it is pretty different from the Victor Hugo novel, uh, to, to the point that the title actually is different. Victor Hugo's original novel was just called Notre Dame de Paris. Um, it's, you know, it, the English translation, I think, English usually translation does include Hunchback. No, yes. you're you're right, and Victor Hugo is apparently really upset about that. <laughs> it's there's there's actually I think a really interesting trend of adaptation with this particular story. Like it is kind of funny to me that like pretty much out of the gate, people were quote unquote getting it wrong. Like the second it came over to America, it was like ah, like this book is mostly about architecture. Let's spice it up and put the Hunchback on the title, and people will think it's about a monster. And then they read the book, and I, from what I've seen of it, like Quasimodo's story is like a very small part of the original. It's just over time has been you know inflated, 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 and until we reach this point where he is actually the main character, like even in a bunch of previous adaptations, it seems that like it was more of an ensemble cast thing and him being like the lead is really something more that like he has um because in most versions he's just straight up deaf so it's you know really it's 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 tricky in a in a movie version to uh pray that and probably not particularly well in the past we've we've obviously gotten better at that but i i have a hard time seeing mid-90s disney in a good way portraying a deaf protagonist like that I I'm it's almost probably a good thing that they didn't because mid 90s sensitivity would not have been great on that. 
But yeah, so Katie, what what were some of your overall uh, thoughts? I'm oh, sorry, Caleb, were you, did you have something else to add? No, nah, I'm, I'm, I'm good. Let's jump into it. I mean, we kind of went over overall thoughts already. So, good okay. feel. If we uh, want to get into more specific details. Yeah, no, no, are there any, any particular uh, areas that you wanted to, to jump into? Hmm. Sexy animation. <laughs> this movie is... There's okay. There's a lot of like this has to be setting records for Disney. I have some timestamps picked out in terms of Ooh. content that you might not expect in a Disney movie and how soon it hits it. Um I think for a couple of the ones I'm going to list um Tangled might beat a couple of them in terms of how soon they appear on screen. Um but overall um we have 3 minutes to racism, not Zootopia racism real life white character looking at a minority and making racist assumptions about them three minutes in three minutes and 30 seconds to an on-screen murder there is no cutaway you see her body hit the pavement and she dies from it yep um four minutes to attempted baby murder (laughs) um uh 10 minutes to uncomfortably realistic emotional abuse uh some of the dialogue between frollo and quasimodo is disturbingly realistic and um 12 minutes to straight up gaslighting when frollo is talking about how his mother abandoned him uh so really just a lot of a lot of content that they pack into that you wouldn't normally see in a disney movie and i have one other thing to add this came out in 96 which might make it the first actual contender if there's one before this let me know but according to one line of dialogue, Jolly, the goat, uses he, him pronouns, which means yes. Hugo, the gargoyle, may in fact be Disney's first openly gay character. Let's go. Give it up for Hugo. Woo! I, 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 lo- I love that for both characters. I, I, I wish it wasn't a goat and a gargoyle, but, you know, I mean, progress is a slow thing. <laughs> A gargoyle voiced by George Costanza, which is the most important part of that character. I I did forget upon rewatch just how jarring it is to hear George Costanza's voice happening in this movie. Like everything with the gargoyles is a little bit jarring, but the fact that one of them is George from Seinfeld is extra. Just it comes out of left field. You want to talk about voices that caught me off guard? I was I didn't know this until today, watching through and hearing a, a guard and be like. That sounds like Patrick from SpongeBob. And it is. It totally oh, is. I I was watching and wondering if Katie was going to catch that big uh, I, SpongeBob fan that you are. I believe there was a moment where I went, huh, now that voice sounds familiar. I should look that up 10 minutes later. Forgot to look it up. I did pause. The, I, had, I was watching it while having to like stop to run and do some stuff at points. I did stop it 19 minutes in to like go finish something uh, to Caleb's previous point and went, oh, it's probably, been, that was so much happened. It, it, we're probably about a third of the way through. Oh, it's been 20 minutes. Oh, oh. This is an efficient movie. Like I think uh, yes. there's, there's a lot of praise heaped on this movie and very rightfully so for both its animation, its songs, its characters. A L- lot, of, lot of those, you know, stylistic elements. I do want to give it good praise for 
again it changes a lot of the original victor hugo novel um but victor hugo novel is huge and i think this movie hits on most of the important elements you know again if not beat for beat the plot at least like the major events and you know themes um and uh, adds on quite a few themes as well we can get to that um but it does it all in under an hour and a half which is unheard of in this day and age there are no breaks there's no good time to pee in this movie. I mean, again, you shouldn't have to because it's a 90 minute movie, but like you, 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 you tell me what my bladder can do. <laughs> I don't have the bladder police. I would, argue, I would argue there actually are there. There's two potential places. No, one is too quick, which is hilarious. <laughs> the other one I think it is, which is the only song in the entire movie that I'm like, I don't know if this needs to be here, which is the the gargoyles hyping up Quasimodo as the city of Paris is burning. <laughs> um, that's if you need to pee, that's a good time to do it. Um, but another thing, you mentioned how efficient the movie is, and I agree with you. It's very fast paced and they fit so much in. But something that I I realized from an editing perspective is we'll get to Hellfire later. We're gonna talk about it. I'm sure there's so much to talk about. Fantastic song. And then scene cuts away, and then um, the carriage, it's the next morning, carriage pulls up, and Phoebus says, uh, are you all right, sir? And uh, in a darkly hilarious line, Frollo says, I had some trouble with the fireplace, which I had remembered that line. That line's great. I love it. But then Phoebus asks, what are your orders, sir? And Frollo says, find the girl. And then it cuts to the next scene. And it wasn't until this walk that I realized that scene only exists for the fireplace joke. There's no other purpose because we already knew from the song Frollo is going in the morning to go try and hunt down Esmeralda. There's no need for that scene aside from the joke. And honestly, I love the scene even more for it. I I can really imagine them making that, they, making the movie, having it in storyboards, like showing it like in screenings, like internally, like, you know, see how the movie is going. Um, good time to mention this, this movie uh, is, is made by uh, Kirk Wise and Gary Truesdell. Um, who are known for having also made uh, Beauty and the Beast. Uh, they will, after this point, uh, make uh, Atlantis. Uh, and they also worked on Pocahontas. Um, so just good, good crew, good, 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 uh, good directing duo right there. Um, but I imagine they were sort of going through the movie and being like, oh, wow, Hellfire ends on such a peak. I think we need a buffer. <laughs> I think we just need a second for the audience to come down off the high of big dramatic uh, Frollo's screaming to the heavens. The uh, Latin choir is vocalizing and chanting and like he collapses on the ground in the shape of a cross. And then for them to, had they immediately then cut to them destroying all the all the homes in Paris, I feel like it would have like kind of just broken your brain. I think you needed like a brief moment of something. And it, it's a fun line, like you said. So I think maybe it was just them just sitting in a room racking their brains being like, okay, what can possibly go in between this incredible climax to a song and watching literal genocide happening is this the only mo disney movie to portray literal genocide like pocahontas vaguely alludes to the possibility of it but it's like... been a while did the atlanteans and atlantis get genocided i forget exactly what the lore is in that it one. has been a while i think it was more like no, no. they just didn't want to deal with human <laughs> civilization anymore so they went under the i mean same 
I mean, yes, relatable. Hashtag relatable. Um, I it's also been too long since I've seen Atlantis. I don't. I I think it was more of like a Little Mermaid type, like humans are evil. We must distance ourselves from their society, kind of thing. Versus, and I mean, also of course, it makes it so much worse that the one in Hunchback is like a real one. I don't know too much the history, but like I certainly know the generalized history of the Romani people and. They use some very striking imagery in this. And again, I don't know if it is accurate to the time period because I maybe the two of you know a little more about 1400s France and the expulsion of the Romani people involved in that. Um, But like as like film shorthand, seeing, you know, basements torn up and just groups of Romani people under the floorboards being hauled away by the government, like that. That's very specific imagery that they were using that I think was meant to evoke a very specific kind of genocide, um, which kudos, Disney. That's really faulty. That's that's pretty, uh, pretty dark to go to go for with your and I cannot stress this enough. G rated movie. I thought for sure it was PG until I rewatched it. And again, it's only the only content warning required is tobacco use. I believe you you spotted. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I was when I I I you know I was playing it on Disney Plus. Um, you know to to rewatch it. And again, I I don't think I'd ever played it on Disney Plus before. I think my only experiences watching it was again as a kid on the terrible VHS. Um, and then later I think the whole thing was uploaded to YouTube at one point. So I remember watching it on YouTube as a kid. Um. But uh, yeah, watching on Disney Plus for the first time and they have their usual like little overlay warning at the beginning to, you know, let you know that this movie's from the 90s and is therefore evil. Um, but the one that they the only one that they had was may contain depictions of tobacco, um, which I had to kind of rem- try to remember where that is. Uh, Esmeralda in her disguise has like a pipe, like when she's like looking like an old woman. <laughs> to be clear. The goat is the one smoking the pipe <laughs> the because of the way that disguise pipe. works. You're right. You're right. The goat does have the pipe in, in his mouth. Um, so it's only bad if goats smoke, kids. <laughs> well, yeah, it's like it, not only is there a lot of other super dark content in the movie, but even if it's like, well, for G movies, the main thing we have to make sure is like we warn the kids about the substance abuse. They just flat out sing about wine and beer, and that also doesn't get a content warning. There's a guy who's visibly drinking wine, almost passed out drunk as he's carried aloft on a chair, and the ratings people are like, yeah, that's fine. That's it's fine. truly baffling what that's- needs to be noted and what doesn't. That's a really good point, because not only does it depict alcohol, which, like, lots of Disney movies, like, get away with, like, showing adults, like, casually drinking, and I think we can argue that that's fine, but, like, I feel like the song Topsy Turvy actu- actively makes drinking seem like a really fun thing that you should do to, like, skirt authority. Like, hey, all these cool people are out here drinking, and it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Like, if I were a child watching this, and of course I was at one point, I feel like the takeaway from the entire Feast of Fools is getting drunk in the middle of the street in Paris is an awesome way to spend the day. (laughs) There's there's actually really funny jokes about wine in the movie, because when Phoebus is wounded and he, like, uh, it stings because she's disinfecting the wound, and he remarks if it's like, oh, that must be a 1200 Burgundy, not a good year. Like... That's a great joke, but it only makes sense if you know what wine is and the fact of how wine works, which is, I figured you should warn the kids about that, but I guess not. I mean, and also, you know, and on another note of things that happened really early in the movie, um, how how early do we get the first use of the word damnation? Because that's, uh, 
that that's a is, strong one for a that G-rated is, movie. That's between minutes uh, ten and twelve, uh, according to the markers I gave, because I remember when each yeah. what each moment was. And I believe we get the first word of uh, the first use of the word hell um, somewhere in the first twenty minutes or so. Very uh, heavy use of that. Um, well, hell, hell happens during the attempted infanticide, right? Isn't he like, this oh yeah, is, yeah I'm does. sending it back to hell where it belongs. Where it belongs, yes, exactly. <laughs> three minutes in, uh, three, uh, four minutes in. Let's be, let's, in. let's be fair. <laughs> this is just so wild to be in a world in which the Shaun the Sheep movie got a PG rating for like flatulence, <laughs> which this I movie also has. <laughs> so hard in the last minute trying to research anything about the history of the Romani people in France, specifically in the 1400s. I did learn that the first recorded Romani people came to Paris in 1428. Okay. So this, oh, so this was like new racism. This was how dare these people come into our lands racism. Which that Frollo does pretty much say that exactly. Um, so I, you know, again, I, we haven't done super intense research, but for what I can tell, yeah, that sounds it sounds like the movie did some research yeah most of the intense programs again like statewide ones weren't until like the 1700s they started getting a little bit more states then but then again if we're going into history nations didn't really exist until about then so this was kind of yeah your your local leaders would be deciding what's happening so it'd be less rich in documentation though i think spain it spain it's got some spanish inquisition vibes that's probably where they're taking some. For sure. And I think like to this movie's credit, like as we were speaking like, in terms of the interesting nature of the adaptation of this story through the literal centuries, um, the original uh, book does not actually care that much about the Romani people. Um, there's actually some pretty startling racism in there that I think Caleb alluded to. Um, spoiler alert, in the original book, uh, Esmeralda is not actually Romani. Uh, she was kidnapped. I forgot. No, her... I forgot about that part. Yeah. Oh, wow. She was kidnapped from her good white mother yeah. and stolen away by the Romani people um, and raised with them, um, which is actually something I really like about the Disney movie because intentional or not, they did a probably more historically accurate reversal of it with Quasimodo, who in the story, his mother was a Romani person. Um, and then he finds that out later after thinking that he was being raised, I guess, as a good Frenchman. Um, I, I, it's, it's, you know, it's a kind of debatable, like what the actual difference in race would have been at this point in history. Um, but the, uh, yeah, I, I kind of, I kind of like that element of it, that it's, it's just pretty blatant, you know, racism in that first one, which has been said of many cultures throughout the years of them stealing away white um and way more way more often in history it's actually the church taking ethnic minorities and whether actually like kidnapping them or just putting them in positions of losing their cultural identity via indoctrination into the church that's much more a thing that happened in actual history so again kind of kudos to the disney movie for looking at that piece of the original story saying no thanks and doing something else I think we can also look at that very specifically with with something that can either be a qualm or be an interesting portrait, depending on how you take look at this take. I think it's both. Is that Quasimodo is Romani. Both his parents are Romani. You would not immediately guess that without that information looking at the character inside. He looks fairly Caucasian. Which 
does align with the fact that often Caucasian appearing children were the ones who were taken for kind of that no one can see my air quotes air quotes re-education by governments when they were like we must assimilate the people we don't like mm -hmm. so it, it is that I do think it's it was a choice to make him appear white passing so you can read it both ways so that one yeah. you can read both ways other things in the representation when you look at it, you go well that's just still bad yeah, I, I, I wouldn't. I, I will certainly say this movie is, is on the side of, you know, the Frollos of the world, the, the French people perpetuating an attempted genocide versus the Romani people. The movie still comes out overall on the side of the Romani. But I, I think to, to your point, Katie, it's not, it's not the most flattering portrayal. It does. It really lost. This is, this is the real negative hard part. I think now of the episode. Um. It loses me a little bit in its telling, especially towards the end with that. When they get to, we're also just in spoilers now. Yeah, you know what, for, for whatever. Let's, spoilers, go see the movie. It's 90 minutes, it's spectacular. All of you should go see it. Go, it's, go see it. It's 45 years old, so you should have seen it by now. <laughs> Anyone who came out, who was born the year it came out is almost dead. Yeah, basically, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you're right um when so when they get to the court of miracles that whole sequence was when i kind they kind of lost me a little bit in there like the parts where it is like kind of positive because a lot of the reasons excuses used for persecution against the romani people is that they are cheats of society stealing criminals to then just have this kind of sequence played out where they kind of proudly exclaim that they are indeed slightly criminals it's just like well now we've we've stepped back <laughs> and a lot of the character designs are definitely caricatures and it's very visible in that scene where you're just like you were you weren't walking a great line but you were working walking the okay line and now you've just you have taken a hot step back I think that's an excellent point. I think it's definitely a valid criticism. I think whether or not this movie actually goes with the original uh, book story of Esmeralda isn't actually a Romani. She's just a stolen little white girl who was taken in by the evil Romani. Like, even if it doesn't directly do that, there is a huge difference in the way Esmeralda is portrayed versus mm -hmm. every other Romani person in the movie. Like there, yeah. there was care given to her character design to give her, even though she has darker skin, she definitely has more Western features. She has green eyes. Um, she is definitely drawn like a main character versus the lineup of Romani, who, as you said, do not have terribly flattering character designs. Um, except for Clopin, who is a cool looking dude, but even he still has a lot of some less flattering uh characteristics that might be more common of some of those stereotypes um but yeah, yeah i think her nose is always something to look out for and they have them as well yeah yeah uh, esmeralda has a very cute little disney princess nose and most of her uh people in the movie do not <laughs> mm -hmm. so it i think that was the most negative take that i also knew i would have going into it um especially because I've 
I haven't done a ton of research on the Romani people, but I did do some, uh, especially while I had a chance to live in Central Europe. Um, so I knew I with the some background, I was like, this is gonna be a the worst part. I will it will take away from parts of watching because I'm going to be going, hmm. Yeah, for for sure. And you know, you and then it, the white man's here to also help save the day. Damn you, white man. It it is definitely there are some real white savior elements, I think, especially at the mm-hmm. end. We have Phoebus, you know, ra- rallying the people of Paris, but also I think more specifically the Romani. Um, but yeah, I there's there's definitely a lot to this movie that feels very 90s, like it's good to remember that this was just after Pocahontas, which had a lot of the same problems. Um, I'll I'll give it this. I do, as much as I wish they hadn't leaned quite so heavily on the Romani people are thieves and scoundrels and have like a secret like underground black market where they're clearly fencing stolen goods. Um, like it is at least a little better than I feel like the portrayal of like the Native Americans of Pocahontas where like they mm-hmm. come across as very much like the pure peaceful noble savages and like kind of in like a kind of infantilizing way like I did rewatch Pocahontas recently again with uh, some people mm-hmm. who had never seen it before and like not like not that I w- wanted them to portray them in that movie as if they were like you know bloodthirsty savages because that also wouldn't be correct but like there was kind of a weird condescending nature they had to them mm-hmm. like oh they're just like peaceful people living in the woods in touch with nature like they they had no idea what was happening when civilization was coming like there, there's kind of an uncomfiness there so mm-hmm. on the one hand I I'm glad they didn't go that route with the Romani and make them out to be just like pure victims with no agency whatsoever um but yeah they definitely if if they were doing a remake today which it seems like that live action reboot is completely stalled and is probably not going to happen um if they were to redo it that would definitely be one area that i would hope they would approach with a little more sensitivity than the 90s one Mm -hmm. i will i all of that is correct i don't disagree with any of that um there is one particular aspect of this movie that has aged in a weirdly progressive way which is phoebus is a white savior he's not the best character in the world um but at the end of the day, this movie is kind of an ACAP movie. This is a movie where Phoebus finds himself part of the establishment and he learns the establishment does not care about the people. It's racist. It is going to um, commit atrocities against people. And if you find yourself uh, in a situation in which you're being asked to do something immoral, the solution is not maybe I can change it from the inside. The solution is quit. <laughs> quit and help in a better way, in a more productive way. That's true. I did like him more when he went, no. <laughs> I I agree. I think I I think my memory of Phoebus, like going into this rewatch, I think I thought of him as like more of like generic, boring white savior dude. But like they kind of give him a really fun arc throughout, and a lot of it, to its credit, I think is shown through the animation, through his like facial features throughout. Like from the beginning, when he's walking into Paris, coming back from the wars, like you see him like not being totally cool with everything that's going on, and then he's brought to the Palace of Justice where his predecessor is getting whipped. And, right? Okay, another. Another one for your list, Caleb. How quickly into this Disney movie do we hear off screen a man being tortured, presumably to death? That's, I didn't write down the timing for that, but I want to also clarify here being tortured. And at the end of that scene, 
the torture itself is played for a joke. <laughs> a very, very dark joke of Frollo talking about, ah, oh, yes, your predecessor. And then he smirks as you hear the scream in the background. It's, in addition to having some dark subject matter, I had forgotten how, like, this movie just also has a dark sense of humor that I actually really enjoyed. There's lots of moments. I know I mentioned, like, the song should probably be cut. But I kind of love that the opening line to that one Gargoyle song I mentioned is Hugo going like, look, Paris is is a light with romantic lighting. It's because it's on fire. But aside from that, it's still super romantic. Like, I kind of love that. That's it's it's so over the top dark that it's incredible. Yeah, there's there's a lot of little little bits like that. Like they're in the the sequence where uh, Phoebus first meets Esmeralda, which I really like that they like take the time to give them an interesting meet cute. Like so many like love interests in Disney movies just like see two hot people across the room and it's like boom, they're in love. Um, like there's like they they have like a really like witty back and forth um that that culminates in you know him, Phoebus being like oh like you're you're hitting a little below the belt there and she's like oh no now this is and she goes to just smack him right in the crotch there's a lot of crotch jokes in this movie there's, by yeah, the there's way multiple of those yeah <laughs> there's, um there's a lot of times this movie with areas people getting hit in the junk yeah um and then yeah speaking of their relationship which I agree I think especially considering neither of them are the lead. They have a really fun arc that I, I, you know, it's a 90 minute movie. So of course it will feel more rushed than in real life, but like I kind of bought it. I was like, yeah, that's, I've, I could understand why they would fall in love from these interactions. And another thing that I think this movie has aged mostly well with, uh, mostly because you just don't see it in Disney movies very often is the movie teaches you to like teaches kids how to handle rejection. Like Quasimodo is flat out in love with Esmeralda, does not get the girl at the end. And the movie, the movie is like, yeah, you can be sad about that for a little while. That sucks. It's not fun. Um, he's a little bit like surly with Phoebus, um, but it's mostly played for laughs. And then, yeah, by the end, um, Quasimodo's like ending arc, aside from I've overcome the trauma of my parental figure is, um, yeah, I I respect Esmeralda's decisions. I'm not going to get in the way of that. I'm happy for her, and I'm happy for Phoebus. Um, and I can find acceptance and um, meaningful relationships in other ways. Um, I I truly can't think of another Disney movie that that has that, especially with its main character. For sure. I mean, yeah. Talk about Disney. I mean, you were saying before with the with the A cab thing, how certain elements of this movie have aged even better than I think even when they first came out. Uh, and I think that's absolutely one of them. I think not not that this was was at any point not a thing, but I think in recent years, especially with the internet being the cesspool that it is, we've definitely sort of seen the rise of a certain breed of person, shall we say, that is you know of the belief that women owe men something and that rejection is very personal and you know a, a lot of that sort of thing and that has sort of I think been perpetuated by a lot of movies including Disney movies uh treating a love interest not just women I think you know Disney princes get this a lot too of like being the reward at the end like Quasimodo you know does a lot of good things for Esmeralda he is kind he saves her life he does all the things that a Disney hero is supposed to do and he doesn't get the girl because a girl is not a thing to be got a girl is a autonomous being who might very well appreciate all the things that the man has done for her and might very well want to be friends with the man 
but at the end of the day does not owe that man her her romantic feelings like she does she likes phoebus and it's not because of anything quasimodo did it's certainly not because of his appearance like we see throughout the movie esmeralda is very much treating him like a human which almost no one else in the movie is um it's just he there's there's no spark there like he love he loves her she does not reciprocate and unlike frollo he is okay with that by the end it's not like you said it's not easy he has to deal with the rejection but ultimately because he is a hero and not a villain like frollo he accepts that she's made her choice and moves on yeah i was gonna say you mentioned a a breed of (laughs) of people who think that if they interact with a pretty woman um that they're owed something and if they don't get it they're going to be cruel to that woman what a perfect transition to talk about our main antagonist because holy cow who was who was cooking and was like frollo this is going to be a classic disney villain um it's he he really stands out because he's way too realistic it's it's he's he is a scary villain because he's just a guy in power That's not it's a joke. That's not, no, you're not that's wrong. You're not yeah. wrong. He is just a man with power. He's a he's a white man with power. Yeah. God, there's uh, nothing more terrifying. Haunts my dreams. Um. Yeah. I, I would think this would be again. You you've talked, Katie, about how you know certain aspects of this movie are up your alley. I I I think going into this, I thought this was a villain that you would appreciate because I'm I'm have come on this show and been like I I love a real mustache twirling evil villain. Like I was big into Radigan when we talked about uh uh Great Mouse Detective. But I think in you know you you with your more you know somewhat highbrow approach, I thought you'd appreciate Frollo being one of the you- more hated disney villains are you saying the fact that some of my favorite films are 1960s czech films in which the enemy is just the state and white men in power how dare you make assumptions you're right it's a terrifying because it is caleb did it pretty well like well it is a genuinely terrifying villain because it is way too realistic you're like oh oh i see this in modern day huh in my children's cartoon interesting for sure i, I mean i think there's also there's there's so, so much to unpack with frollo as a villain um i mm-hmm. i i do love the aspect of him that is you know in that part of you know the group of again lar- largely men I'm sure some women there too but like stereotypically men who see any feelings on their own part as being because of a provocative woman who has inspired those feelings in him. It's it's not my fault I'm acting after this woman. It's her fault for provoking me and she must be punished for that. Like, oof, God, that's, you know, obviously in its most extreme form that, you know, we have, there's countries on earth that have actual life and death laws based around that and then sort of in our more western everyday life we we see you know somewhat uh more understated but still unpleasant forms of of that kind of treatment of, of women like it's god it's rough to see just in in a disney movie like this and knowing that i'm sorry caleb but roughly 30 years later it has not gotten that much better uh, yeah, you want to talk about those cool chants um, when Frollo is yelling to this choir of specters that it's not my fault, I'm not to blame. They are chanting mea culpa, which means it is my fault. It is like it is a profession of sin. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the other big one that I love so much is um, 
uh, Kyrie Eleison, meaning Lord have mercy, plays almost every single time Frollo does something cruel and shows no mercy. Just the idea of um, uh, it, it is ominous because it represents Frollo, but the idea that the choir is working directly against him also shows that like this is not what religion is supposed to be. He is using religion as a tool for his own gains. And that is, if I can kind of slightly transition into why this movie means particularly so much for me. Um, uh, in the words of Lou Wilson, this podcast is data-driven and hyper-Christian, because I'm going to talk about my faith life for a couple minutes. Yes! Um, this movie is very important to me because I think it does teach the very important lesson that church and as an establishment and as like a business and as an as a large capital e entity can cause a lot of harm it can be used as an excuse um to do horrible things it can be used as a tool to gain power over people um and there's a lot of people out there who use religion faith church as um just a stepping stone to get what they want which is often bad evil things um and yet at the same time, there is an, a, an almost more subtle undercurrent to the movie of, on a personal level, if you are downtrod, if you are an outcast, religion is still able to offer um, hope and something to aspire towards. Um, and uh, it's, I don't know, more than truly, more than any prayer book, more than any hymn, God Help the Outcast is the most important song for my faith life. Um, it makes me cry every single time. Not only is it a beautiful song, but it's all about how um, your average person might see faith as this opportunity to be selfish and to do things for yourself. Even in the song, you hear normal, just French people going around the cathedral asking for wealth, asking for fame. Um, and Esmeralda is instead using it as um, a way to be selfless and to pray for others and to offer hope that um there's there's even like a heartbreak in the lyrics of i thought we all were children of god implying that like in this moment she still doesn't feel like she's being accepted it's not like all of a sudden everything is fixed um but it is kind of this channel of aspiring for humanity to be better um because that you know again in my own personal faith life that is what god wants it wants us to all be taking care of each other they want uh, that that's that's what religion is supposed to be about and the fact that the song can handle all these different dimensions of how faith and religion operate in society is really fascinating and at the end of the day very hopeful um on a small scale even though the large scale religion is also kind of the big bad in a way it's it's fascinating that's that is the main reason i love this movie yeah thank you so much for for sharing that perspective caleb i i think that's a really important secret sauce element of why this movie works like i think i've seen like a lot of like you know youtube film theorists talking about this movie and how you know it owns the catholic church and how it's you know why why all religion is bad you know stuff like that which is not really what I get out of this movie. And I, I think part of it is I think people get, you know, it's called like Disney, like watering down some stuff from the Victor Hugo novel, which I think is much more explicitly anti-Catholic because I think Victor Hugo had his own issues with the church because he was a mid 1800s French revolutionary. So like, you know, stuff, stuff in history was just happening then. Um, but like one of the elements of this movie that I really love is the separation of Frollo's character from the archdeacon. 
um, who in the original, that's one and the same. It's, you know, Frollo is an archdeacon of the church. He is much more explicitly aligned with the church versus here where he is a judge. So he's more on that, you know, ACAB side. Um, but we then have the character of the archdeacon who the first time we see a genuine member of the church, you know, member of the the. I, I don't know what the what the term what the term exactly would be here. I'm, I'm not being Christian. clergy, clergy, clergy. Perfect. Um, he is saving Quasimodo's life. Um, and the additional thing that spares Quasimodo in the beginning is Frollo feeling the fear of God and for and literally saying in the movie like the one time in his life he's actually correctly interpreting the will of God. Like whether he sees it as that or no, the movie makes it very clear that god and the church itself do not condone his actions and you know sort of in that moment explicitly the infanticide but like on a larger level like the church is not cool with everything he then does throughout the rest of the movie it's just this one guy's twisted interpretation of the the church's teachings and obviously not this one guy like yeah the history is full of people who have twisted religion for their own gain um but i think the movie does a really good job of separating those things out and the god help the outcast number i think is a really great example of showing the good aspects of faith and the importance it is for for these individual people who are looking for hope and looking for faith and looking for community and that incredible power that that has um yeah, we're also just I, we've talked about the songs, but real shout out to Alan Menken and Stephen Schwartz on these these songs. I mean, it's it. I mean, re- really, especially Menken. Um, it, Stephen Schwartz's lyrics are are pretty good too. I think, especially Hellfire. Um, but like, good lord, that Alan Menken score just leans so hard into that church organ. Like, I th- this movie, I think, is the closest thing to finding religion I'm ever gonna have. <laughs> It it makes it makes me it makes me want to be like more part of this world. It, like I'm I'm speaking very genuinely here. Like I think this movie is the best possible argument for me to join the Catholic Church. I'm not gonna do it, but like it it between the the way it depicts the architecture, the way it depicts like the positive influence it has on people like Esmeralda and Quasimodo, and like of course the music, like. It hasn't convinced me. There's there would be a lot. It would take a lot to convince you to join the Catholic Church. But this movie makes the best possible argument for it. Pipe organs are probably the best part. Such good organs. God, I would I would love to see like this movie in concert. Like in, in a church. If they could do it in a church, like a big old organ and then a full orchestra. This movie's been like kind of half buried by Disney. It's not like it hasn't gotten like the Song of the South treatment they fully pretend it doesn't exist but like a lot of whenever they have the opportunity to bring it out like it's a big deal like I was super excited to see Quasimodo get his own like bit of the song in the Once Upon a Studio uh, short they just put out uh, I wasn't expecting to see him so prominently um, and then whenever they do uh, a Disneyland event uh, where occasionally they do a little bit of out there in there if they're like doing like a a bit of of all the Disney songs uh, so that's always a fun place to see it but overall this does not get the same level of hype that the rest of the movies of the renaissance do so i think my opportunities to see it in concert might be slim um but if they ever do it this is the best music of the renaissance possibly the best music disney's ever done um obviously that's a very subjective opinion on my part but i i stand by it oh my god the score is so good yeah i i would agree with you there i think the the, uh... 
I don't want to say mostly because the script is also really good. But in terms of, you know, you mentioned efficiency of getting storytelling done. First five minutes of this movie are maybe my first five opening minutes to a movie ever. Just that that story of telling the origin of Quasimodo, I think, is so fantastically done. Um, that last chant of Bells of Notre Dame on, hits, it hits that high note and I get goosebumps every single time. Just you saying uh, it gave me goosebumps remembering it. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then just another another cool like title thing um, that I don't think I ever would have noticed, except for if you buy it off of iTunes, these songs are listed as the same track, um, which is the reason I don't know if, if the if the podcast has, knows the lore of the Disney song bracket, but um, I don't we, think we brought it up before. <laughs> okay, I, our friend group has tried to try to find out what the best Disney movie, uh, the best Disney song is. Um, and I insisted on putting these two together because they're listed on the same track. It is um, Quasimodo singing about how his love for Esmeralda gives him hope and inspiration and is making him a better, happier person, followed by Frollo talking about how his love for Esmeralda um, makes her a terrible person because uh, Frollo is unwilling to face his own flaws. Um, and the two songs are Heaven's Light and Hellfire. And the idea of the two dichotomy, but also like using light as a metaphor for both of them is communicated in the titles alone in such a cool way. And I just, I think that's really, really awesome. And, and I love that the the underlying melody of uh, both of them is the same, just Heaven's Light is in a major key and uh, Hellfire's in the minor. And that's not the only time that happens. <laughs> I, I didn't notice that until this time, but I was paying attention to the motifs more. Um, the um, da, 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 like that motif is played in a, it's, it's the bell tower motif. Whenever mm -hmm. someone talks about the bell tower, often when someone is in the bell tower, that plays. Um, Whenever Frollo sings it, it's in a minor key. Whenever Quasimodo sings it, or it's a scene about Quasimodo, it's in a major key. And that was also just another really cool use of motifs of how these two characters um, are just diametrically different in terms of their views on life and the world around them. It's just, it's really cool. I, you know, Alan Menken, obviously, uh, or maybe not so obviously, depending on how uh, steeped in the Disney lore uh, listener may or may not be, uh, has made a lot of great songs uh, and scores for Disney movies. This feels like his most sophisticated, I think, for the reason that you're discussing of like how intentionally they're using those light motifs and how, uh, you know, a, a lot of Disney movies have those elements. But the, I, I think there's just a strong intentionality of the kind of... Uh, themes they're trying to evoke by doing them in the major or minor key and when they bring it up um it, it i i do i i feel bad that howard ashman was not involved in this movie because i think him working with menken and having his style of lyricism to you know elevate some of these songs i think even further than they already are uh, i think in a lot of ways the score of this movie uh sort of overpowers the lyrics um in a way that when Mencken was collaborating with Ashman, like those are like the, you know, Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast. Like those are sort of the songs that like everyone knows all or most of the lyrics to, where as I feel like even I, someone who's watched Hunchback a million times, I, I have a hard time like remembering all the lyrics to all the songs, despite the number of times I've seen them. Um, and the most chilling lyrics tend to be the Latin chanting. Um, and then you have something like A Guy Like You, which on this rewatch, watching with subtitles, I did realize just... Oh wow, this like some of these lyrics they really are phoning it in a little bit. Um, I 
I they 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 have a line that that this is something like like you'll ring her bell you're the bell ringer like there's there, there's like a, a handful of lines in there that are like only really half rhymes and are just kind of thrown in there they write the rhyme uh, Adonis with croissant is that I, one it, was a real stretch <laughs> I remember that and I was also I was trying to think if I if I had the bell ringer one memorized because you are right that it was it was pretty much that bad. Yeah, you ring. It's not even you'll ring her bell. It's just you ring the bell. You're the bell ringer. That's it's what like, it was. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's your job, and not really relevant to the song, but it's a trait about you. So we'll sing about it. <laughs> yeah, I, I can't I can't blame that song too badly because that the the gargoyles and throughout the movie I think are are a rough point for basically everyone. Um, I, I see, Katie, you're you're nodding. I I think that's uh. A sticking point for you as well. Who put drama or who put comedy in my drama? <laughs> Gotta have something for the kids. Look, we just there yeah. was a, we were having a chat uh, that all three of us are in, and someone was like you could pretty much just remove Momo from Avatar. And it's like, you gotta have stuff for the kids sometimes, okay? It's 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 fine. Let it, it's it's gonna be okay. You can cut the song. I agree you should cut Guy Like You. That's It doesn't need to be there. But for if, if they ever do make the remake, I, I hope the gargoyles are still there in, yeah. to some extent. I, I think there's some really good points with the gargoyles. I think I, I was sort of trying to track that I was as I was watching this. I was like, okay, like putting aside in my head, like, why I know the gargoyles are actually there, which is because they need something to cut into the trailer so that they're not putting like the infant murder in the trailer. <laughs> like they they needed something to show to Jeffrey Katzenberg, who was the president of Disney at the time, be like, this is a viable children's movie. Like we have something that can be sold here. Like that's why the gargoyles are here as as a you know, 25 year old person who has seen this movie and sort of has a vague sense of how the industry works. Like, I, I know that. So like going into this rewatch, I was sort of trying to like challenge myself to be like, okay, put that out of your head. What do the gargoyles bring to this movie? And there were some elements that I did really like. Like I like the, there is a viewing of the movie that unfortunately gets thrown out the window by the climax but in the first two acts you can absolutely interpret the gargoyles as just figments of quasimodo's imagination which is really heartbreaking when you think about it because quasimodo has been isolated in this bell tower and has literally only talked to his abusive gaslighting father figure who Um, by the way makes fun of him for talking to the gargoyles that he believes are just stone yep he's he's an awful person (laughs) This this movie takes so many chances just to hammer home what a terrible person Frollo is, and I I do appreciate them for that. Just every every possible instance of that. Um, but yeah, like there's, you know, it is really jarring to hear George Costanza weird stand up every few minutes whenever he's there, and there's just some jokes there that I think never worked. Like I don't know why he has a thing for the goat. Like yeah, I know. Like you know, we stand representation, up. Scarlet. <laughs> No, I know. And you're, but like, and you're homophobic for complaining about it. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm not complaining. I just maybe it didn't have to be George Costanza because he's doing it in a creepy way too, right? Like I don't know. It's every everything about that that subplot is weird. Um, yeah. but like there's 
like I I like Laverne's conversations with Quasimodo. Like I like their talk, like to pep him up and try to get him to go to the festival. Uh, she has a really they the two of them have a really gut wrenching line uh, toward the end when Quasimodo is like chained up in the cathedral and is like watching Esmeralda about to be burned at the stake. Again, a thing that Disney Plus does not feel the need to show a warning for. Um, and you know he's you know in the pits of despair, thinks that he's just caused the love of his life to be killed in a terrible fashion. Um. And they're sort of encouraging him to break the chains and get out. And he's like, no, you know, he's the hero rejecting the call at the end of the hero's journey, you know, the classic. Um, but, uh, Does you know. usually happen right at the end? I feel like it's usually an early on thing. There's, there's, there's like a second one. There's like, it goes okay. in like, there's, there is the, uh, there's the, the pit of despair, basically. Gotcha, gotcha, there's, the, okay. there's the, uh, the dark night of the soul where the character needs some motivation to continue on. Um, but, uh, they, you know he like basically snaps at them and they're like all right you know we're we're just made of stone we just thought you were made of something stronger like every time i hear that line I'm like oh man that that slaps so hard um it slaps and, it, and then he just breaks through stone because he yeah. is stronger than that it's awesome <laughs> no it's great and my appreciation for that line also this is the first rewatch in which i have seen clips of the 1950s charles lawton version uh, the last line of the movie is Quasimodo watching uh, the the basically Esmeralda leave and the happy ending essentially, but he's still trapped in the cathedral essentially in that version. And the movie ends with him hugging the gargoyles who are not real in that movie, um, and sort of lamenting like, "Why was I not made of stone like you?" Um, and it's like I I don't know if they were directly meant to, meaning to homage that, but it kind of feels like maybe they were. And that's like a really, I think it's a really powerful way. Like that's the way Quasimodo's story ends in the, in that Charles Lawton version. Um, but it's where Quasimodo, the hero's story begins in this version, um, which is, is pretty rad and pretty cool. That's pretty cool. I was just <laughs> so confused why two thirds of the way into the movie, they decided to make them have physical effects on the world. Yes. And I'm also just reminded, I really like how Scarlet says gargoyles gargoyles is that do i say yeah. it weird okay no i think it just sounds nice in your specific accent when it comes out i'll have you know i don't have an accent just like every person who grows up in the new york area we have the correct way of speaking and everyone else is doing it wrong well you're losing a little bit of new york you've been in la too long oh no now i sound like an angelino <laughs> <laughs> like yeah let's talk more about hunchback you guys wow that just activated my fight or flight <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i mean there's it's 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 funny like there there are some moments of comedy in that last chunk that i regret to say i do kind of enjoy like i do like them just launching the catapult over the side that made me laugh out loud i i forgot about that bit completely and i was like that's great that's that's gold it, it got me just because i simply didn't expect it at all because it's just so like it's field. such an inspiring montage as they're building it you really think they're gonna like they might launch something funny out of it and that's where the, the gag is but the the actual payoff is they incredible really subverted my expectations and it's, you know good for them that's the goal 
it works as a great Looney Tune bit in a Disney movie because it has the first, the, it, it has like the classic Looney Tune, like the funny joke happens, you settle down from the joke and then something else happens Yeah, uh, where you have them, you, right. You have the first, the first like expectation is set up. They're launching the catapult. Something is, they're going to, maybe they're going to throw something funny off of it, or maybe it's going to work as intended. You don't expect them to just throw the whole catapult off. And then the gargoyles are like, yeah, is that how it's supposed to work? Maybe. And like, you think it's done, but then the catapult activates on the ground and also hits people <laughs> um but yeah it's you know there's moments like that there's a lot of mood whiplash throughout this movie that even isn't gargoyle related like there's like uh, esmeralda has i think a, a lot of really like funny chase sequences throughout the movie like there's uh, or like maybe only one or two but like especially when she's like fleeing uh the the feast of fools like there's a lot of again a lot of people getting hit in the crotch gags <laughs> Um, that, that did go on longer than I remembered. Yeah, there's, you know, she she also I think just straight up is magic because she does a lot of teleporting in that scene. And like, I know, like, it's more like supposed to be like she does, you know, parlor tricks, you know, in that kind of stereotypically Romani fashion. She's, you know, got, you know, smoke and, you know, bits of scarves and cloth and all that. But like, also, like, I think she just straight up teleports. Like, I don't, I don't know how else to justify how, how she manages that. Um, I had the same moment going, I don't think she's supposed to be magic. I think that's just supposed to be the fact that that's what people stereotyped. However, <laughs> I mean, and, and impressive for not magic. And and talk about the mood whiplash. This comes literal minutes after watching Quasimodo getting pelted with rotten fruit and then being lashed down onto a wheel and spun and just beaten in the middle of the square. Like, and then a minute after that, Esmeralda going to free him and giving an impassioned plea for freedom in the middle of the Paris square and publicly calling out Frollo for his genocide against her people. Like... Oh my god, a lot happens in that moment right before we're seeing a bunch of crotch shots. A lot happens in this movie, and it didn't have make me feel so many emotions. You know what gag I forgot was in this movie? I don't know why. I could have sworn this was in Hercules. It's the guy of, I'm free, I'm free, and then he trips into the stockades and goes, ah, dang it, I forgot that was in this movie. I love that one, too, even though it's part of the mood whiplash. Yep. That gets a callback later on. I know. I also completely <laughs> forgot there was a callback to it. That blew me away with Monsoor. Monsoor. Yeah, right. Like, that's another thing. Like, we're, we're see that comes, like, either right before or right after a truly majestic shot of Notre Dame Cathedral with the, the gargoyles having, or I guess they're not gargoyles, the ones that have, like, spigots in them. I think there's another term for that. I, I don't know what it's called. But essentially, they're pouring hot oil through them and having a hot oil coming from every corner of Notre Dame. And you see smoke rising in plumes in the distance, and there's a red sky. It's like, oh, my God, this is one of the most gorgeous shots Disney has ever put together. And then, yeah, you have an old man tripping into a sewer that's labeled Monsoor. Well, it's so while watching this film, related to the sewer, shockingly, while watching this film, I had to pause because uh, I ran out of, I needed to stay with my bedtime. Um, so I was like, I just couldn't get it all done in one night. Um, so within like the like 12 hours between watching it and the next, oh, maybe more like 16 and what I was going to pick up. I got multiple videos about the Paris catacombs and started spiraling about the Paris catacombs again. Um, and I was just like, I think my phone was listening to me. 
It was one well, of those moments where everyone went, ah, it's, <laughs> the FBI is on to me again. The Paris catacombs are so cool and so creepy. There are definitely cryptids in there. Cryptids? Because it's, it's a crypt? Uh, 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 I've been in a building made of bones. Um, they are an interesting time. I do recommend. It makes you feel emotions. You know, I, I was going to say I should check that out sometime. I don't know the next time I'm going to be in Paris. Are there any, like, local bones I could visit that you would recommend? No, but we can go to Portugal. Okay. I mean, that's they always have several bones. Paris, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, why is that considerably better than Paris? Well, it's not better. And then you don't want to go to Paris is because it's full of bed bugs. That is a good reason not to go to Paris. Portugal yeah. might not have any. I don't know. I haven't checked in. I yeah I mean maybe maybe not I I definitely don't want bed it's bones. It's not though. a very American tradition to fill uh, churches with bones. <laughs> I think that might inspire a new satanic panic. There there are definitely a lot of bones in this movie. I also I also wonder where where it ranks on the Disney movies for the number of bones we see because when they're in the catacombs, there's quite a lot. They're just hiding in them. I feel like Coco might have it beat, but uh... there you go. Yeah, that's Pixar. <laughs> but yeah, that's Dis- it's well, okay. Disney. Released. Yeah, everyone, everyone always says, "Oh, it's Pixar, not Disney." Yeah. It is a Disney movie Under- still. Under the under the Disney umbrella, uh, for it, sure. If it shows up on Disney Plus, I consider it a Disney movie. And I believe it's after the conjoining of Pixar and Disney, at which point I stopped oh. making a lot of distinctions between considerably Pixar and after, Disney. I believe. Yeah. Well, this well, this would have been uh, they were still distributing, but I don't think uh, Disney bought Pixar until the two thousands. Yeah. No, I was Coco, talking about, we're Coco. talking about Coco, right? Oh yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, Coco itself. Yes, yeah. yes, yeah. Coco would be. Yeah, there's yeah. there's a point in the Disney buying of Pixar that I stopped demarcating yeah. them because I started watching Disney just plummet the quality. I'm looking at you, Lightyear. Ooh, Ooh. harsh. <laughs> also, if we do want, if we don't want to count Pixar movies, because mm. um, then I think another contender might be Princess and the Frog, just because Facilier has a lot of bone related imagery. He does. Um, I I can't guarantee that that would beat Hunchback in terms of how many bones there are, but I think that could be a contender. Uh, Princess say the word bones one more time. Bones. I I think Princess and the Frog might also be the only other Disney movie that features its villain getting dragged to hell at the end. Um, Yeah. (laughs) I mean, technically, technically, we don't know that uh, Frollo has been dragged to hell, but the imagery certainly implies it because his last words are they sh- he shall smite the wicked and plunge them into the fiery pit and then Notre Dame Cathedral itself becomes possessed in a demon face and drags him into the fiery depths below the cathedral. Yeah, I was going to say like maybe the most thematically fitting Deus Ex Machina, but you were speaking earlier of like how some people say this um, movie is like anti-religion. It's like it's anti-church as establishments. But Frollo literally dies because he's bragging about how he's going to smite the wicked. And God says, no, you are the wicked and I'm going to smite you. That's that's literally what happens to him. Yeah. Oh, for Quite sure. Quite an anti-establishment film. Yeah. And 
And I, I do love how much of an active player the church is in this story. Um, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, the original name of the book was just Notre Dame de Paris. Um, and Victor Hugo really just wanted to talk about how much he loved architecture. Like this dude was just an architecture bro. Like he was he was just here for that church, which at that point was like, you know, five revolutions in and had been destroyed by every single one of them. Um, so he like I, I think in a lot of ways, I think Victor Hugo would be very pleased with this movie because I think it does a really good job of portraying the uh, the cathedral, the bells as not just being important as a character, but being sort of like the stand in of God on Earth. Like, I think the movie really portrays a lot of what's happening in the church you know in god help the outcast the stained glass falling on around esmeralda as as katie said not actually on her because it would have looked weird um i've done some her, cool stained glass staring at the, her staring at the statue of the virgin mary the the eyes of the kings of israel on the statues around notre dame like shaming frollo into taking quasimodo and then of course at the end the church causing frollo to die um, I, I like how much the church is just like the avatar of God in this movie. Uh, yeah, and just in terms of like showing love to Notre Dame as as a building as well. Um, I A moment I'd completely forgotten that I really, really loved. Sometimes there'll just be a small moment in a movie that I will, like my heart will just jump with joy. Um, of Esmeralda going under one of the bells and shouting out hello. And just like in a very just enjoying life kind of way and Quasimodo saying she likes you it's just like that moment I just really really loved and then another like I don't know if Victor Hugo would like this I thought it was <laughs> hilarious um I assume it's John the Baptist uh but there's a statue of a beheaded like person he's holding his own head and um that's in one of the chase sequences where Esmeralda uses it as a disguise. It's what, yeah, it's when Quasimodo helps her out of the cathedral. Oh. And like one of them has their head on top of the next stump, pretending to be the actual head. And then Esmeralda is in front of it praying. Um, but just like, I, like, I don't know. I don't know if that was in the script. I don't know if that was the animator's decision who thought of that, but I don't know. I just love the idea of, it's a statue of a headed person and we're just going to have a character pretends to be the head. It's, <laughs> it's lovely. It's fantastic. It's great. Another, another example of like dark sense of humor, but also there's respect there as well, because I very, very much, I don't know. I haven't done the research. I very much assume there is that statue probably somewhere along the walls of the cathedral. Um, and it's showing a lot of care for the building itself that, yeah, I think is really, really neat. This film sure. just partially reminded me that my uh, one of my saddest travel moments in life recently was the fact that I that Notre Dame burned down before I could go visit it in my love for visiting European cathedrals. Yeah, I also have never it, been to Notre Dame yeah. proper. It, it is, I think, just still slowly being rebuilt, but fire. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... It's unfortunate, like obviously no 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 building can withstand the test of time forever without changing in some form. Uh, I'm sure <laughs> whatever restorations they're doing, they're going to be doing incredibly lovingly and painstakingly and trying to maintain as much of, I, I want to say the original look, but also I, I know just a little bit about the history of this cathedral and it has been rebuilt like 
hundreds of times over its history because it's been around for like a thousand years. Um, so it's uh, uh, probably hard to say what what restoring it to its original glory would even look like. Um, but I, I really do feel like the animators really took the time to make the cathedral as majestic as possible. Like, I love that it's the first thing you see in the movie. Like you you hear the beginnings of the bells and the chanting Latin choir, which again, goosebumps. Um, but then you have your big rush of the, 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 the what I, I think of as the, as the hellfire theme. I know Caleb, you might have a better name for, for that light motif, you know, the da, 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 da. Um, it's it's weird because yeah i do consider it the hellfire theme but it's it, that very first time it's used it's just like behold the majesty of notre dame that's that's the first time you actually hear it is is it just like god's theme like in a lot of ways i feel like that's kind of just that what it is hell. it's it, used when characters are characters or the church are invoking god in some way that's true i don't love it is literally the main melody of Hellfire, so I I hope yeah. it's not meant to be that straightforward because that it is, is also Heaven Lights theme. It most is most famous use. That's true. Yeah. I don't know. I'm still recovering from when um uh uh Stephen Sondheim was like, "This is the Bean theme in Into the Woods," and I'm like, "No, it's not. It's Rapunzel's theme. Stop calling it the Bean theme. I know it because it's associated with Rapunzel." But alas, but apparently, it's also, officially, it's officially, it's... it's the bean motif because, yeah, they drop the beans, whatever. <laughs> well, fun fact, Notre Dame is apparently going to reopen in April for nice. mass. Okay, um, so there's your fun fact. Also, I follow gotta go up, back to April 2024. Uh, End of next year is when it will officially open to the public, though. Uh, follow-up fun fact um i was uh apparently wrong it was probably uh saint denis of paris uh who was uh represented by that beheaded statue Interesting. Not bad. i hey i there were there was no chance i was getting anywhere close to who he actually was i'm almost positive john the baptist did get beheaded um but um looking at what statues are presented uh, along the outside of notre dame uh, it looks like it was probably saint denis that, I believe you're right. Artie is sniffing the mic. Yeah. Um, oh. St. John, or John the Baptist's head was literally served on a platter. I believe that's where we get that phrase from. Oh my god, that's mm -hmm. horrible. Yeah. <laughs> wow. I, I, I'm, I'm sure it is that particular saint, but I also, I, I, as a bit of trivia, I do know that during the French Revolution, they did cut the heads off of all the statues in Notre Dame as a kind of just f you to all the kings because it's like ha, huh, we're 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 gonna cut off the heads of the saints too how do you like us now um so i i almost wonder if it's also a allusion to that part of the history even though that was many many years later i don't i i, I like that trivia fact i'm glad you <laughs> shared it but uh no the shot i'm specifically referring to it is it is a statue An of uh, yes, because he is holding the head. In the statue, there is the statue's head being held by the body. Oh, yeah. yeah. Um, pro probably probably not that, that particular trivia fact being referenced there, but I I just think it's neat because the French revolutions are all such messes, and Victor Hugo obviously has his own beef with that, as you mentioned in Les Mis when he later went into that. Um, yeah, it is, it, it, is, it is interesting sort of trying to give those kind of, like, Victor Hugo, I think, has sort of a reputation as being like a revolutionary kind of guy, like freedom to the masses and all of that. And like, I feel like this movie kind of retroactively puts those themes into, again, it doesn't seem like Victor Hugo was terribly fond of the Romani people. And 
you know, while he might enjoy the uh, how much this movie respects the architecture of Notre Dame, I imagine if he rewatched this movie, he probably would not love how generally positively portrayed the Romani people are because he was I, I don't want to say a, a product of his time because it wasn't okay then and it's not okay now. But like, yeah, he probably wouldn't have liked that part. Um, But I do like that retroactively, this movie feels very Les Misy. Like the people of, of Paris, like coming together and fighting up against systemic injustice and an authoritarian head of state and, you know, the, the, the free, freedom for the oppressed. Like that's like that, I feel like is what I mostly take out of this movie. Like when I when I finish this movie, like, that's, like, the feeling of the end of this movie. It's just, it's freedom on a very literal level for Quasimodo, who is no longer trapped in the cathedral, um, on a broader level for, for Esmeralda, who has gotten her freedom and is no longer being hunted throughout Paris. And then on a very broad level, it, we assume for the Romani of Paris that now that Frollo is no longer there, he specifically is no longer persecuting them. Uh, the movie only introduces one figure who is specifically attacking the Romani. I, I like to live in the bubble of the Disney movie where he's the one problem and once he's gone, everything is a-okay. Um, as as we all know, it you get rid of the one guy and then everything is fine. It's not systemic at all. <laughs> um, yeah, I, lo I love that that's the theme of this movie. I think this is a very progressive uh, Disney movie in that sense. I think relatively few Disney movies have that high aspirations in, in their storytelling. Um, and I'm I'm glad that this one has it. Very well said. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, just going over. It is funny that you mentioned like Hugo's uh, uh, seat as a revolutionary because I am looking back at despite how inspirational everyone always talks about it being, the revolution in Les Mis. Spoiler alert: famously doesn't go well, and oh, famously please. is like the, the character, the main characters who survive it go. That might have been for nothing. I don't know if that helped at all. Um, I'm I'm depressed about the fact that it feels like it was for nothing. Um, so in a weird way, I guess you could call it Disneyfication, but I, I agree that it ends on a very optimistic note that I don't know if Hugo would enjoy it, but I don't think was generally Hugo's um, uh, uh, claim to fame. Um, mm -hmm. But it does make for a, a much more inspirational story. Um, and yeah, I love it to death. I also, we talked a lot about Jason Alexander, um, but overall vocal performances, we barely touched on all around. Tony J gives one of the best vocal performances I've ever seen. Um, it's, the, they always knock it out of the park casting their villains in Disney movies, but I really think Tony J is a cut above a lot of the others. Um, and uh yeah just just a fantastic movie like i said um very personal to me because i also love um how it very directly acknowledges and criticizes how religion can be used as a tool um for those in power to do cruel things um but on a more um small scale personal level faith can also offer something incredibly optimistic and inspiring and something that can um improve your life because it improves your relationships with the people around you. Um, so, uh, yes, I, I I love this movie to death, and I'm I'm glad I got to talk about it. I mean, I'm I'm glad we got to, to talk about it with you, uh, Katie. You've now seen it for the for the first time. You have any mm -hmm. any wrap up final thoughts? What are some things that that stood out to you as particularly uh, 
exciting to you now that you've now that you've seen it and can join us in these conversations? Uh, I think we hit a lot of good good details already. I mean, we didn't linger too long on the animation, which is always my big thing. I like unique animation also, and this actually has a lot of unique moments in terms of how they choose to do camera angles. Um, they make great use out of wide angle kind of perspectives um, in to vary shots. Um, which was a big thing. And I'm just a nerd. So I was having history moments in the background. <laughs> there were a couple that, that surprised me of revolving camera shots that I thought mm -hmm. looked beautiful. Um, there's one of the two I remember is one of Quasimodo sliding down one of the troughs. Mm -hmm. um, and then um, the rescue sequence as he grabs the rope and scales down the wall of Nostradam to save Esmeralda, I thought was really cool. It looked beautiful. Yeah. The... They've been so much love into this. <laughs> the way they designed a lot of the shots really added motion um which a lot of current films feel at points very stagnant uh, which we're getting out of now in some ways i mean of course with the with the new more hand-drawn style that saying hand-drawn really does well is giving us unique motion what I what I really love about the animation in this movie is the sense of depth and scale that we get. Like when mm -hmm. you're in the cathedral and like you're you know in one part, like looking at the characters, you really feel how deep it is. Like if you're looking off into the distance, like you see like the mm -hmm. pillars disappearing into the distance. When Quasimodo is sitting, you know, on the edge of the cathedral, looking out the city, like I feel like you have a really good sense of of the scale in that moment of how high up he is and how vast the city is around him. Like I think that's honestly something really hard to capture in cg mm -hmm. i think a lot of cg looks very flat because yeah. the way you can't manipulate shadows nearly as easily in that space means that it's harder to give a sense of that scale um and so one of those things makes me you know kind of feel sad that this is one of the last of the hand-drawn animated disney movies like there would be a handful after this and you know we're we're turning a little bit more to that style but like oh gosh thinking like this is what we did in 1996 like had this been allowed to continue on to the present day, could it have gotten even better looking? Like this already looks as so amazing and not only holds up, but I think puts a lot of modern animated movies to absolute shame. Like, boy, is it a shame that we didn't allow this experiment to continue because all of these artists, I think given the chance to thrive 20 years later might've made something unbelievable. Yeah. And speaking mm -hmm. of that sense of scale, not only is it visually incredible, but one other detail that I forgot to mention, I know I've talked a lot about the song already. Um, you hear the sense of scale when they're in a cathedral. And mm -hmm. one of my favorite parts of God Help the Outcast is that final note as the camera pulls out, you hear that note echo and it sounds like she's in a cathedral. You don't even really hear her make the D of God noise because it's just an echoing note across the cathedral, which is beautiful sound editing i thought was very well done mm -hmm. it's it's almost surprising for me to think like i think my impression of this movie based on the way disney has sort of reacted to it since again not not fully burying it but definitely not like holding it up as one of its fine achievements um it, it almost surprises me how much they allowed to be done on this like this 
the, the there was clearly a lot of faith in this project. Everyone who worked on this project gave it their all and invested a lot of time and effort into making sure it was as excellent as it is. Like it is it is very interesting to me that things like those those little sound design elements and the amount of care that went into the animation that you know even like I think Hercules came out right after this and I'm I'm met on Hercules as a movie I think I like it less than a lot of other people but I feel like even the biggest Hercules stands would have to agree side by side with Hunchback like the animation the songs you, you can't compare like it's the the scale is so much bigger um so it's really producer coming yeah, was, I know. Rachel's. I was going to say, down. people will argue with you about the songs. Uh-huh. Maybe the songs. Maybe I'll, I'll give you the songs. Maybe not the score. Like, when I think of the score of Hunchback, that they just wrote this, like, unbelievable choral music. Um, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of people who will be happy to debate me on this matter. But, like, it, it just, it feels so huge in a way that Disney movies, even the best ones, do not feel huge. Yeah, I think we've certainly uh, covered a lot of ground here. Uh, we've, we've been talking for a while. Does anyone have any any final points they want to uh, wrap us up on? Um, I have one really last very personal note. Um, and you mentioned uh, at one point you did actually already bring up that a lot of care clearly went into this. A lot of people worked hard on this. Um, and it's very personal to me. Esmeralda is the hottest Disney character of all time, and it's not even really a close contest. Agreed. Uh, do you do you have on your on your list of timestamps, Caleb? Uh, the first moment a Disney princess uh, pole dances because yeah, a pole dance. Yeah, I didn't I didn't write down the time. I was too distracted watching the beautiful animation of the film. So we found our next Disney bracket. Please get us out of this podcast. <laughs> I can't see it. You're not wrong, though. It's a really well choreographed dance. Like, I'm sure the artists were, like, also a little bit focused on the boobs, but, like, dang, the way they use it's cloth. Like, I can feel the cloth. I know exactly the texture of the cloth that's moving around the pole. Like Hunchback, we are working, we are fighting against that G rating of this podcast. Yeah, that's all. I I don't know how apocryphal the story is, but I have heard multiple times the story of the animators having to go frame by frame and make sure that every image of Esmeralda in the fire very clearly has clothes on. Because if they had one frame where it's just like her fire thing in in the Hellfire sequence, they had a single frame that you could interpret as potentially her being naked, there would be an issue. That's wild that you say that, because it wasn't until watching this time that I was like, Fire Esmeralda just looks naked. I like I didn't I, I if I was in charge of the censor, I would have been like that's got to be PG guys. We we can't. I it's great, but come on. That's a naked fire lady. I'm convinced they paid off the censors. I I think it's the same theory as went into like Hitchcock directing the shower scene where like he cut it in such a way that your brain is convinced that you saw nudity but like if you actually went back through you'd be like oh oh yeah I guess it wasn't actually because like I think I think they do like try to do the swoops of flame in such a way to like imply the presence of a dress um but it sure doesn't feel that way and it doesn't help that he's singing about like her like 
setting fire to his soul and his like licentious thoughts like it's like oh okay like yeah you're 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 talking about some very not rated g things in this moment sir oh we didn't even mention they sniffs her hair at one point um that's a thing and again just talking about like the censor sniffs her hair and then she goes what are you doing and then he says i'm just imagining a nice rope around your neck and there's no interpretation of any of that that's G-rated because he's being pervy. And then his excuse is, oh, I wasn't being pervy. I was just thinking about how nice it's going to be when I hang you. It's like, there's, <laughs> this, this is wild. This is a Disney movie. I, you, you said, Katie, that someone paid the censors. I, knowing Jeffrey Katzenberg's whole skis, I would not be shocked if that actually did happen. He was... I, I don't want to say I don't want to compare him to Harvey Weinstein because that's a really unfair allegation to make against a person who, as far as I know, has not had anywhere near Harvey Weinstein's stuff. But like on just the level of like the slightly shady, like Oscar bribing type stuff, I get the sense that Jeffrey Katzenberg was the animation version of that. Um, if you ever have time, look up the terrible stuff he did to the Fern Gully production when they dared to have signed Robin Williams before he got him for Aladdin. Um, but, uh, yeah, there's, uh, uh, I, I can kind of see them like go answers and then being like, this is PG. There's a world in which this is PG 13. You can't seriously want a G rating for this. Um, but in those the days, that's has power. the mouse has great power. Um, and that's why we now have basically no G rated movies at all. Despite the fact that many of them, I feel like could absolutely get away with being g-rated and don't need to be pg um but yeah that was there's so i mean right and that's how her next line in that sequence is i know what you're imagining which is not explicit necessarily but like i i i think she's she might be thinking of something adjacent to fire lady in that moment yeah um and by the way i just want to say um if you were a censor who got paid off by jeffrey katzenberg and then you got fired for it um just take inspiration from the soundtrack of the trolls movie um as you pack up your stuff and leave the office because that's what jeffrey katzenberg uh told his staff when they all got fired what a terrible person one one, one day katie we're gonna do the opposite of a creator spotlight which is just us ragging on jeffrey katzenberg we've done that not for him but we've done that before we did that for butch hartman i know <laughs> That was like our third episode. No, but the Butch Harmon one did genuinely start off with the two of us being like, let's praise a guy who worked hard on a project that we loved oh, in no. our childhoods. Okay, I started with that, and then you told me a bunch of stuff about Butch Harmon I didn't know that made me sad. I pitched that as, I'm going to ruin your childhood, by the way. <laughs> and you went, oh. I... I thought like maybe he later made like adult animation or something. I I thought it was like when you listen to Kristen Shaw's stand up and all you hear is Mabel. And anyway, um I I think I think we've we've just about covered it. Um anyone else? Final final thoughts, really last chance. No, I want to go to bed. <laughs> I know, I know you're tired. It's 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 late for you, but we you you knew what happened when you invited uh, Caleb and I to talk about yeah, yeah, this was yeah. gonna go a while. I never shut up. That's we, the consequence of inviting me on the podcast. We fully could ha- could go longer. We haven't even talked about how much I love Tom Hulse and wish he was in more stuff and how like I almost cried hearing him again in the Once Upon a Studio short because he's literally been retired for 25 years at this point. Oh. Um, 
he's great he's so he he doesn't he doesn't have like a perfect broadway voice but that's what's so good about him anyway i'm not i'm not gonna go down another please how long did you say he'd been retired for I think like right after Hunchback was like one of the last like projects he actually did. Yeah, how how long? What was the number you said? Like like twenty five ish years. Shut up! Shut up! It hasn't been that long. Shut up! <laughs> All right, before before we we get too deep into the the passage of time, uh, let's wrap this up. Caleb, thank you so much for joining us. As I said before, there was no chance we were going to do this without you, and you did not disappoint. Thank you for bringing all of your great thoughts to this pod. So, so happy to be here. And Katie, I hope uh, you enjoyed us forcing you to watch this movie. Mm-hmm. One of your better ones. Wait, what, what, what should the next one be? You still haven't seen all of Lion King, right? No, I've seen half of it. <laughs> you have a Lion King. You haven't seen Beauty and the Beast still, right? Nope. All right. We played this what? game. You can keep naming yeah, I'm gonna, them. I'm going to keep doing I'm gonna... No. I'm going to keep doing that at the end of every one of these. I think either either Lion King or Beauty and the Beast, I think, will be the next one we show you. Uh, and and I will be excited to show both of them because those are two of my favorites as well. Can I, uh, can I share my Disney hot take? Yes. You don't have to invite me back for Lion King. Ooh, now I have to, though, because I think you've got a juicy take then. I don't dislike it. It's, it's, it doesn't quite do it for me, but that's I'm curious point. to see if Artie likes it. <laughs> you, you do, I've heard you a lot of stories of cats liking watching it. You you have a tiny lion in your apartment. I th- I think his input is very important. The the animal he is changes weekly. Is he a horse? Is he a lion? Is he just a dog? Who knows? What well, he is is annoyed. I'm not in bed. <laughs> good good segue. Thank thank you listeners for for joining us for this episode. Uh, I'm I'm gonna get back into our cartoon time machine and just blast some organ music. Let's do this party <laughs> all night. Shouldn't let you install the organ in the time machine. It runs on organ power now. It's the only way to get it off the ground. Organs take up a lot of space. It's it's a the, the time machine is a TARDIS. It has as much space in there as I need it to, and it currently holds a full-size organ. Caleb, contradict our lore one more time, and you're not coming back on here. I'm not contradicting it. I didn't say it. you couldn't do it. I just pointed that out. I, I yeah, really hope that one day we become big enough that we have a wiki that's tracking all this lore that I'm just making up at the end of every episode. Because I think now if we're calling this canon, it runs on organ power and we're just going to keep that going forever. I think it's cheaper than gas, but I don't think either of us really know how to play the organ. I, I live in Los Angeles. It will be cheaper and easier for me to learn how to play the organ than to fill that thing up with gas. Uh, I had you... to try to play the organ the other day to test some speakers. It didn't go well. Um, if it runs on organ power, do you think you could donate a kidney? Would that help out? <laughs> That's where we're ending. That's the best one. I'm Scarlet. I'm Katie. And I'm Caleb. Guessed me. Hello. Yay. Yay. We're all your animates, and we will see you next time. Gargoyles.